text we'll be reading is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 29. The Bible says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You may be seated. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to we're going to be in the text. We're in Matthew chapter seven, where uh, Brett just read. Thank you for that. Let's let's pray. Lord, what what sobering words you have said in this in this text, and so. I pray, since your words are sober, since your words are pointed, since your words are very, very serious, that, Lord, you would give me the same heart, that I would speak with clarity. God, please eliminate any distractions that that I do. Fill me with the Spirit, and I pray, Lord, that you would help me preach with authority, um, not on my own, but, but only by the Spirit. I pray for myself and everyone here who, who considers the words that are written. God, that it would shape us, it would change us, it would cause us to maybe take pause in what's going on in our life and consider your words. And if not, if, we're, if we don't know Jesus, not make us consider our lives and see that we don't know Jesus and cause us to put our faith in Jesus. For those that do know Christ, to really consider the way we're living our life. So God, be with us now. Point us to Christ and the gospel, our only hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are actually uh, been going through the book of Matthew now for about six months. And we are going to today finish chapter 7. Um, We have spent 17, this will be the 17th week, just on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, This sermon is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, and we are are bringing it to a close. And so, it has been a long process to go through the entire sermon, Um, and I think a great process, but one, one might ask, What's the point? Like, why, why not do a quick overview in just a couple weeks? Why is it that you'd want to do that? I, I want to read you a quote from Arthur Pink. And he says this. Never were there so many millions of nominal Christians on earth as there are today. And never was there such a small percentage of real ones. Tons of nominal Christians. Tiny percentage of actual Christians. There has never been in the history of this Christian era when there were such multitudes of deceived souls within the churches who really believe all is well with their souls when in fact the wrath of God abides on them. And we know no single better calculated thing to undeceive them, to pull them away, to open up their eyes than all of them to receive a full and faithful exposition of the closing verses of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly chapter 7. 
About three weeks ago, I preached Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 20. And I said at the very beginning, um, this is actually a a large sermon, and I'm only going to be able to preach half of it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, all the way to Matthew chapter 7, verse 27. Um, is all really one sermon that I was going to try to preach. I just didn't have enough time. So I, I, I divided the sermon in half. And so I preached the first half of the sermon a few weeks ago. Um, and this is the second half of the sermon. And so um, what I want to do is kind of give you the review of that other half of the sermon really fast. And then it'll, it'll get you ready for the, what's going on today. And if you see um, from verse 12 all the way to verse 27, Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's, he's done the introduction. He's done the body of the sermon. And now he's, he's rounding the corner, if you will, and driving home into the conclusion of the sermon. He's, he's finishing it up. And what he's doing with this, this conclusion um, <clears throat> is he's, he's dividing it, the line, very, very... He, you know, <clears throat> this is basically what it is. Uh, exactly what Arthur Pink just said. In, in, in America, especially, there's... There's people who are real serious, and there's people who are obviously not serious. And in the, in the, in the middle, there's this massive, like, 95% or 80% to 95% of the mushy middle where you're like, I don't know where they are. I don't know, are they over here? What team are they on? Are they, are they with Jesus or are they against Jesus? It's only one or the other. And in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's driving into this mushy middle, and he's saying, you're going to pick a side. We're not going to play the game anymore. That's basically what he's doing here. And the way he's doing that um, is he's going to give four contrasting metaphors. And basically, that just means um, two things that are in stark opposition to one another. And he's going to use a comparison. And he's going to say, you're either here on the path to heaven or you're here on the path to hell. And so the way he does that... Um, is, com- is comparing things. He uses metaphors. And you can see in verses 12 and 13 and 14, and, and this, is, this was point number one, he has the metaphor of two gates or two paths. And basically he says that the Christian must enter through the narrow way and the narrow gate. Uh, that's basically what he says. The Christian must enter through that. If, if you're not e- entering that way, that narrow gate, that narrow path, well, then you're not one. And then he continues on his, in his conclusion. And in verse 15 through 20 and he's making us kind of beware of teachers and he compares the teachers to trees and so the point number two that he does is where he he contrasts these these two trees or teachers he says the christian must bear fruit of a christ-like character and he will inherit eternal life and he's again um, pointing out to every person that's in the mushy middle that you can't play games it's going to be one or the other and so now he's he's turning the corner, and he's really not kind of pulling it down in the RPMs, but as we're going to see, verse 21 through 24, and even 24 through 27, he is going to rev it up even more. I mean, he is, he is going out with an exclamation point in this conclusion. And we can see, I mean, it's such a strong thing. You can see, as, as it was read in verse 28, they were absolutely astonished. So his sermon isn't necessarily one of these kind of arc things, you know, and all of it's kind of big in the middle and then you bring it back down. He's going up, he's going up. And in the conclusion, he just takes it up and with a huge exclamation point and just leaves them baffled. They're absolutely astounded at the words that he's saying. And that's where we are. We're finishing up this sermon. Now, why do I want you to listen to this? Why do I want you to really concentrate, not just because it's Christ's words, obviously, um, but I think that it might shape the way you and I live. Um, a few weeks ago, I have four children, and my, my oldest two were in a tree about 20 feet high, and they were playing in the tree. And the second oldest, who's five, they were both in the tree, and I told them to come on down. Um, the five-year-old, they started to come down. The five-year-old accidentally kind of pushes on the seven-year-old. And I'm, I'm sitting on the, in a little swing. I'm holding my baby. She's one. I'm sitting there. And I see them trying to come down. And the five-year-old accidentally pushes the seven-year-old. And from about 20 feet high, I watch my seven-year-old fall 20 feet from a tree, literally right in front of my face, hitting branches on the way down. It sounds 
Sounds terrible. And it actually was absolutely awful. Um, there was nothing I could do to stop it. Absolutely nothing. I just sat there holding my one-year-old, watching my seven-year-old kind of get beat by branches on the way down. And there was nothing I could do. Um, it was absolutely horrible. And what I want you to know from this is there was nothing I could do. I could not move fast enough to, I could throw the one-year-old on the ground and try to dive over there. It wasn't going to work. It was just, there's not, I could just, all I could do is just watch it happen and then go grab her and take her to the, to the urgent care. Um, and here's the deal. The reason why I tell you that is this. There is a great fall, a huge fall, which Jesus is going to point to in the end of verse 27. A great fall that is going to happen. It's impending on many, many. All this conclusion is saying is many are going to go to hell. Few are going to go to heaven. Many are going to be destroyed. Few are going to find eternal life. And there. The point is that there is a great fall of many people all around you and all around me. It's depending upon them. And I'm just wanting to know, are we going to sit around and watch it happen? Or are we actually going to do something? Perhaps you don't know Christ and this is the day for you to do something. But more than that, this isn't just a sermon for all the people who don't know Jesus to get saved today. This is a sermon for all of us to consider the fact that there is a massive horrible fall that is impending upon many souls around you. And it's a call to action for Christians. I'm sitting in the urgent care with my seven-year-old. It's just, it's just she and I. And she looks at me, and this is what she says to me. Daddy, why didn't you catch me? And I was like, I wanted to. I wish I could have. I wanted to so bad. I wish I was like Superman and I could have done the super speed thing. And, 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 but I couldn't. And in the end, listen, in the end, they're not going to ask you, hey, why didn't you catch me? But I'm asking you right now, if there are people around you that don't know Jesus, why? And there's a great fall that's going to happen to them, as verse 27 says. Why aren't you doing everything you can, leveraging every resource you have in your life to invest in their life? And catch them before the great fall comes. But because the scriptures aren't playing games. Many will say unto me that, that day. Lord didn't we didn't we. And he says away from me you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. So there's far more people. That you and I could even imagine. That need to hear the gospel. This isn't a, this isn't a game. Your life is not a game. And so. Jesus is. Directly stating here, very pointedly to all the people that are listening and to all the people that Matthew will be writing to that are Jewish and to all of us who are reading it right now, all of us, that we need to take heed and consider our own life and whether we're in Christ truly. And verses 21 through 23 are going to kind of point to that in the lives of others around us and what we're doing with our life. Let's look at the text. Verse 21, and this will be the third one. And here you're going to see, um, you can go ahead and put number three up. It says two declarations or two claims. Basically, I, I, one's in, implicit in the text. You actually don't see it. And one is explicit. You actually see it. Um, the one that's explicit that you see is, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name. And, and Christ says, I never knew you get away. Which means it's implicit that there are some people that say, Christ, I know you, I believe in Jesus. And he's like, you're right, come in. Well done, good and faithful servant. We can see those in other places. So, but the only one that's explicit in the text is this one. Um, the, the one that, <clears throat> where they are sent to eternal condemnation. But the, the third one here that we see is two declarations or two claims. Um, and what I want you to see at is that, is that the Christian will show that he truly knows Jesus by doing the will of the Father. He will show that he truly knows Jesus by doing the will of the Father. So let's just make this really clear, really plain from the beginning. Here's the deal. Salvation is attained by faith in Jesus. Absolutely. 
And we know that you don't have to do necessarily a, a full life of good works in order to go to heaven. I mean, point to the thief on the cross where Jesus says, today you'll be with me. And all he, all he had to do, he, there's no good works he gets to do. I believe in you, Jesus. You're going to be with me in paradise. The rest of his life is hanging on a cross and dying for a couple hours. So you can point to the illustration, and I know you can. And there will be um, time. So I'm not saying that works earns salvation. I know it's faith in Jesus. But let's not eliminate what this text, both of them are going to say. And this is exactly what I'm saying. The Christian will show that he truly knows Jesus by doing the will of the Father. Salvation is by faith, yes. But both of these texts, both of these sections are going to point to the fact that after you come to faith, you must be a doer of the will of God to show that you're saved. Don't just say, I believe in Jesus no good works ever. And that's what he's saying here. Every, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now, the not everyone is directly stating that some will call out to God in a way that is not salvific. They will not be saved. They will call out, but they will not be saved. That's not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. This, this Lord, why say it twice? Have you ever wondered why they say it twice? Why not just once? Um... I had no idea. The commentators told me, um, and this, I think this is right. Uh, Lord is in, in the Greek kurios and um, in the Greek New Testament, which is uh, the Old Testament, the Septuagint, but, uh, Jehovah. Just, I'm just going to try to shortcut it instead of try to explain it all. Uh, back into the Old Testament is Yahweh, and that's I am. Okay, so Lord is kurios, Yahweh. It's I am. It's the name of God, and they say it twice, Lord, Lord. And so what we're seeing here is a person that has right doctrine. Lord, Lord. Yes, your Lord, your deity. Yes, your Lord, my master. But they're not. So they, these people, not only do they have right doctrine and right words, which we're going to see by them calling him Lord, Lord, they have right doctrine. They know Jesus is deity. They have right words. They're willing to call Jesus their master. And we even see in the next verse that they are saying, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? So they have the right doctrine and right words. And they also have right or what seem to be right, outward signs that seem to be done for Christ. I mean, this is, this is scary stuff. All right, then he says, Lord, Lord, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this kingdom of heaven is the same words, motif, if you will, that Christ has been doing the entire time in the beginning of the Beatitudes in 5.3 and 5.10. Uh, you see, those blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he bookends that same beatitudes with blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Christ is still continuing in this kingdom of heaven words, which is saying the kingdom of heaven is here, but it's also coming. It's it's both. So it's continuing, saying you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But, here it is, the one who does the will of my Father. This is the deciding factor. Yes, yes, faith, I have a list. Yes, faith is the thing that's necessary. But, after that, we have to be the kind of people who are doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the difference between the declaration of those who are false declarers who don't know Christ and the difference between the true declarers who do know Christ. In the end, they did the will of their Father. This is what D.A. Carson says. He says, the chief characteristic of these two declarers, the one that's true and the one that is not, is obedience. True believers perform the will of their father. The others are classic hypocrites. They profess faith in Jesus, but they disobey him actively. They might have a manifestation of outward signs. Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we do these things? But they are not obedient to the will of the Lord. Don't ever, ever place success or outward manifestations over obedience. Obedience to the will of the Father is what's important. 
How can you know what the will of God is for you? He says, you have to do the will of my father. How can you know the will of God of God? Then I have people all the time ask me, what's the will of God? Should I go here? Should I do that? Should I be with this person? Should I not? Should I take that job? Well, the Bible actually, you know, doesn't get that specific, but it does actually answer the question what the will of God for you is. I mean, I don't know if you knew this. The Bible tells you what the will of God is for you. Really obvious. First Thessalonians four, three, for this is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. There it is. So whether you take the job, whether you marry the person, whether you go to the class, whether you, whatever, move to the next town. The will of God for you is your sanctification. Your sanctification is not some kind of difficult. I'm sorry. The will of God is not some kind of magical, impossible thing to find. Um, the will of God is easy to find. It's your sanctification. Um, it's hard to do. But. And your sanctification, by the way, just means like your holiness or your Christ likeness. This is the will of God for you, that you would grow in holiness, that you would become more Christ like. Now. This is what he says in verse 22. Um, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Let me back up really fast on on the will of, of, of the Lord. Um. And just say this, the will of the Lord is not something that's just to be admired, just to be discussed, just to be praised, just to be debated or just to be analyzed or any of these kind of things. The will of the Lord in your life is to be done. It's that plain and simple. Um, Does your life right now have a pattern of knowing and doing the will of the Lord? If you don't know, then that's you need to take a step back and ask yourself, am I or am I not? This is not something that you can just kind of throw away and say, well, I don't know if I have to do the will of the Lord. And, and this saying doing the will of the Lord shows that you're saved is not diminishing justification. I believe in justification or salvation by faith alone, not by works. I, I completely agree with that. But the Bible's clear here that once you are saved, you have to have good works that follows your life. God's grace in your life will result always in obedience to his will. And here's the deal. People that don't understand that once they're saved, they must do the will of the Father. That's what happens whenever Arthur Pink is kind of discussing what's going on. The result is that we have so many nominal Christians today in our, in our life. Or, if I, if I could say, as the text might suggest, not nominal Christians, but non-Christians. I don't know that, that nominal Christians are Christians. I think they're non-Christians. James Boyce says it this way. If you are a nominal Christian, there are many paths to hell. Many of them are religious. But there is only one way to heaven, and that is through trusting Jesus Christ. So nominal Christianity will not do anything. So he's telling us that we must do the will of the Father. And then he says this. On that day, on that day. What, what is he talking about when he says that day? What is the that day? This is talking about the end in Revelation. It's talking about the day that the judgment day is going to happen where everybody is is gathered together and they're judged according to their deeds. Yes, it's we have to have faith in Christ. But let me read this text to you from from Revelation. And I saw um, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. Then another book was opened in which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by which was written in the books according to what they had done. Isn't it interesting that it doesn't say according to their faith in Jesus? Isn't that interesting? Of course we have to have faith in Christ to be saved. But it also says according to what they had done. And then he says this. Many will say to me, again, using that language that is very obvious to us, that there are far more people that that are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven than we think. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? You can see the list of the works that they've done. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Now, notice here that in the text, Jesus doesn't deny that. He doesn't say, no, you didn't. He gives that to him. Okay. But he also says it's clear that they did not do these things, even though they thought they did them for Christ. They did not do them for Christ. If you've grown up in church at all, if you've considered yourself a Christian and you look over the course of your life 
and the things that you've done for Christ, that you would say, this was something that, that um, I, I felt led by the Spirit to do, and I did a good work. And you read verse 22. Is this not like the scariest verse you've ever read in your life? Like, I don't want to stand in front of God and say, did I not, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do my name at works. Maybe I will say that list. But it always scares me when I read this to say, what, what if I'm the one who stands in front of God and says these things? And he says to me, as verse 23 says, and then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think that we need to take just a little second and let that verse kind of freak us out a little bit before we continue on. Um, Not just blow past it and not even consider it. D.A. Carson says in this verse, one of the most tragic ingredients ingredients to this scenario is the way these people take themselves to be genuine believers. And I think we all, if you are in Christ, would say that about yourself. And it gets even scarier because after they list out their works... Jesus says to them, then I will declare to them, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. This is the the no in the sense of um, the way the Bible talks about a husband knowing his wife. This is the same kind of knowing that it's being referred to. And then it says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, the same there's actually a verse in Psalm 6-8 that says, Away from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is really scary. This is really scary that it's possible to exercise spiritual gifts and be a total stranger to the saving grace of God. Or I should say, it's possible to seemingly exercise spiritual gifts and be a total stranger to the saving grace of God. And the astounding thing is that men can do this thing in public where there's no certain indication whether they're saved or not. But in the end, when it's private, whenever they finally stand before Christ on that day and the great judgment of Christ comes, they will know. So as we consider verses 21 through 23, I think if you remember... Verses 15 through 20 are kind of talking about false teachers and not letting yourself be fooled by the false teachers. Now, Jesus is moving into the conclusion here a little step further. And instead of having this broad category of teachers that you kind of sit under or consider or podcast or read or read their books or read their blogs or whatever. He's narrowing it in on verses 21 through 23 into you. And he's saying, where are you? Now, here's the way I want you to take this, all right? If, if you're in Christ, I want you to take this, that there will be people that might be in the church whom you might think is a brother or a sister <clears throat> that might not be walking with Jesus, and this could be their future. We need to let it kind of sink into our heart that there are people that we love dearly, that their future could be that they stand in front of our king, and they are going to hear the words, Away from me, you worker of lawlessness. That's horrible. That's scary. And everything that you can do, if you are in Christ, should want to go to them and entreat them and plead with them. Please don't walk down this path anymore. Please don't be so nominal. Please align yourself with doing the will of the Father in your life. Or, if you aren't a Christian and you think you are, Or if you aren't a Christian and you know you're not, these verses should really give you a pause and think, I don't want this to be my future. Now, we're going to go into the to the to the next one. Um, And Christ is is in verses 24 through 27 going to really hit the uh, finish it off with an exclamation point. Let's go ahead and put the fourth one up there. And here you'll see uh, basically the fourth one is is two houses or two builders Two houses or two builders. And what he wants us to get out of this is the Christian will put into practice what he has heard from the master. The Christian will put into practice what he has heard from the master and he will obey. The things that he's heard from the master, which we see in scripture, he will put them into practice and he will obey. Verse 24 says, everyone then who hears these words of mine. Now, in the ESV, we have everyone then. Um, and, and it can be, uh, 
It's actually, there's a, there's a Greek word, un, which is just our therefore. And so the, the then is, is the un. So it, it can be translated, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. Um, and so the therefore, whenever we have the therefores, we have to say, what's the word therefore, therefore. And so I know that's a lot of therefores, but <clears throat> the point is, you know, like a, there's a massive therefore in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. And so this un in, in verse 24, this therefore, Jesus is saying, based on the teachings that you have heard now of all of this Sermon on the Mount, when he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, you have heard now this entire Sermon on the Mount. I began with the Beatitudes. I told you the gospel. And as I told you the gospel, I told you to go be salt and light. And then in the body, I talked about what it looks like to be a Christian. He, he speaks with absolute amazing authority in the rest of chapter 5 as he starts saying, you've heard it said in the Old, in the Old Testament scriptures, but I say, not you've heard it said, and um, I'm going to pull in somebody that's really, really authoritative that you know as a Greek teacher and say, and now this really famous Greek teacher has, has helped us understand these scriptures. Uh-uh. He's saying, you've heard it said, but I say just demanding authority and he does it six times in the end of chapter six i'm sorry end of chapter five and then in six he gives us some more insights of what christian living looks like how we're supposed to give how we're supposed to pray how we're supposed to fast that we're not supposed to be anxious that we're supposed to be givers with our money we're not supposed to hoard it all and then he turns the corner here after that and he goes into chapter seven and tells us not to judge and then tells us how to um, ask and then goes into the golden rule and, and starts the conclusion. So we can see when he says everyone or therefore everyone who hears these words of mine, all of the Sermon on the Mount that I have said, he is jam packed so much in here. And he says, and he does them will be like a wise man. If he does them, he'll be like a wise man. And then you see in verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine again, Claiming absolute authority, not referencing somebody else, not depending on some speechwriter to, to write a speech. And you can say, everyone who hears the words that the speechwriter wrote for me that I think are pretty good. And no, it's these words of mine. This is my sermon. I wrote it and I claim absolute authority. And we know that he is speaking with such amazing authority from verses 28 and 29, because it says in, when they finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching as one who had authority. And it says, not as their scribes. The scribes teach much like pre- preachers today, where we have to reference the authority of someone else. Jesus doesn't do that because he is the authority. He just references himself. You heard it said, but I say, I'm God. I can do that. And so it's, he's saying here, these words of mine. Now, you can just hear Just think about this for a second. Those that were present were the Pharisees, the Jews and things like that. So he is in those words claiming authority. And then Matthew, take a little step back. Matthew is writing to Jews. And so they're hearing Jesus claim this absolute authority. And the Jews are hearing that saying, well, that means he must be the Messiah. And for all of us today, as we read and we hear him saying these words of mine, he's claiming absolute authority. What does that mean? That means he's God. And that means we can't just blow past these words and say, yeah, okay, maybe I consider it now, maybe in five years, whatever. If Jesus is saying you have to listen to the words of mine, you have to have to stop and put yourself under the authority of these words. And whatever they say, you have to do it. If you want to be saved. Everyone or therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and does them and does them. Jesus is calling for obedience here in the doing of them, just like he is in verse 21 when he says, does the will. St. Clair Ferguson talking about doing the will. He says the difference between the false and true Christian is that the true Christian puts into practice what he has heard from the master. And now he's going to contrast it here in verses 24. So let's let's read verses 24 and 25 and get the, the good builder. And then let's read the other ones. The good builder says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it did not fall because it had been founded 
on the rock. And then contrasting that, it says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And then the same thing happens. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And then it says, and great was the fall of it. Now, one little thing I want to show you, one little thing I want to kind of submit to you before we we continue in, in understanding this. Um, usually, I've always read it this way. The point of verses 24 through 27 is, so Jesus is the rock. He rolls my blues away. He's the foundation. And so build on the rock, build on the rock. Um, <laughs> and I was reading some of the commentaries this past week, and they said explicitly, Jesus is not the rock. I was like, What? Are you crazy? Like, he's the chief cornerstone and the capstone. He's all that. And yes, he is that. But they say in this particular section of Scripture, that's not the point. The point is not for you to concentrate on the foundation. The point is instead to not concentrate on the foundation, but concentrate on the two builders, on the people themselves. One builds on the rock, one builds on the sand, but not concentrate on the actual foundations that they're building on. Although everyone there would have understood um, rock is, is smart to build on, sand is not smart to build on. Whether you're building a skyscraper or a mud hut, it's clearly not smart to build on sand because it's going to get destroyed. But the commentators are saying instead, don't concentrate on the foundations, concentrate on the two builders. Because that fits the context of everything we're seeing in verses, in verses 12 through uh, 14, it's saying the two people, which way are you are going to go? So he's not concentrating on Jesus as much because he's concluding. In the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, the choice is yours. The choice is yours. Where are you going to go? And so it fits in the context. In verses 12 through 14, it's the two people. In verses 15 through 20, it's the two teachers. In verses 21 through 23, it's point, pushing it out to the people that are the two People that are making these declarations. And the point here in 25 through 27 is the two builders. It fits the whole context. Yeah, Jesus is the rock and he's the foundation. We know that from other texts. But the point that he wants you to, because he's pushing out. He's he's finishing this sermon with a major exclamation point to those who are listening and say, you need to decide what party you're with. Are you with Jesus or hell? Which one? And so he's saying here, everyone who hears these words of mine He must build on the rock. So what's the rock then? Because if he's pushing it out, what's the rock? What's the sand? And I think this is pretty amazing. Carson says, Jesus is not the foundation referred to in Matthew 7. In fact, the focus is uh, is not quite centered on the foundations adopted, the rock and sand, but upon the two builders and their entire projects. The difference between the two houses is therefore to be likened to the difference or the difference between the two houses. What's the difference is to be likened. What's the difference between rock and sand? The difference is to be between obedience is the rock. Disobedience is the sand. Well, that changes a lot, doesn't it? I mean, that changes a ton. I've said this in the previous section. Yes, we are saved by faith in Jesus. But... Verse 21, do the will. Verse 24, do the words of mine. Jesus is not going to give you wiggle room on the fact that you must do the will of him. So the rock is obedience to him. What are you going to build? Are you going to build your house on obeying him? Or are you going to build your house on disobeying him? That's what he's saying. Because in both situations, the rain fell, the floods came, Winds blew, they beat on the house. house. The same thing happens to most people. All of us are going to experience some sort of thing in our life where our foundation is going to get shook in our life. We will experience suffering. We'll experience tragedy. This is just a product of the fall. It's a product of Genesis 3. Suffering has entered this world. And the saved will stand fast. Now, here's, here's the last thing I want you to see. Um, is the end of verse 27. It says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, just like it says in verse 25. And then it says, And fell, and great was the fall of it. Why does Jesus say, And great was the fall of it? 
this is curious to me. Why doesn't he just, I mean, he's repeated the story basically verbatim. Why doesn't he just change the wording from verse 25? Verse 25 says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Why didn't it say, and, when, and the house did fall because it was founded on the sand? Why didn't it just say the exact same thing? And it fell because it had been founded on the sand, just like was kind of said before. It doesn't say that. In fact, it says, <clears throat> it beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This is actually a Jewish idiom or a, a saying that they have. And so the point is, it fell and great was the fall of it. And this phrase that's being used is to say it was a very public fall. It was evident to all. Everyone saw it, that this man, this foolish man built his house on sand and it fell down in front of everybody. And he says, and great was the fall of it. This was to deepen the impact of what he's trying to say to those who don't put their faith in Jesus and to us who are faithful followers of Jesus. Deepen the impact to open our eyes to see that there is a great fall bewaiting people. It is a massive, terrible fall for one to live 75 years and go to hell. That's supposed to scare us who are in Christ to have deep compassion that we would maybe weep for them and feel so compelled because we know this is a great fall. This isn't just some kind of annihilation where they just go out of existence and they don't feel anything. This is eternal conscious torment. Forever. Great was the fall. He's not making it a small issue, not just something to pass over, but trying to make it huge. Now, let's let's just rehearse for a second. The four destinies of those people that are being described in the conclusion of the people that do not heed Christ's words. First, in the first section, destruction for those who travel the broad way. Second, Fire will consume them and burn them up in 15 through 20. Third, a categorical rejection of Jesus Christ, the king to them, to their face for their disobedience. And fourth, that they are swept away by a vicious storm and in the end called a fool. No small thing. Jesus is not painting some kind of little deal. This is a huge thing. So here's the question. What am I trying to do right now? Am I just trying to scare you so bad? Like Christ, is Jesus and, and, and me just trying to scare you so bad of the destiny if you don't know Jesus and scare you out of hell? Is that my goal today? Let me answer you. Let me ask you this way. What is kind of... Take that illustration from 24 through 27 and, and, and use it this way. You're in your home. You're married and you have kids. And if you don't, you're not married and you don't have kids, we're praying for you. Anyway, um, you're in your home. It's the middle of the night and you're sleeping soundly. Your children are sleeping. It's the middle of the night and all of a sudden a huge flood is coming. Or destruction in some way is coming to your home, um, your house. It doesn't matter. Um, and suddenly I come and I am beating on your door. I am. Your children are at risk from perishing. You're at risk from perishing. It's absolutely imminent. And I come to your door and I'm just I'm just crushing your door, trying to get you to come down and answer with with great vehemence and with great passion. I'm screaming at you. Get out of the house. Get out of the house. What the world's wrong with you? You wouldn't at this moment say you're just trying to scare me. You're just trying to scare me out of danger. You're just trying to be persuasive. What the world's wrong with you? Don't try to just scare me. You would never say that. So that's the same thing here. Yes, the destinies of those that don't know Jesus is absolutely scary. But never would someone who truly wants to cross, be saved, be, be saved from perishing, say, oh, you're just trying to scare me. What the world's wrong with you? You would see that if I did that, great compassion. And you would very much say, oh, yeah, the... The picture is being open to me of what my reality is in life. 
please gather everyone in the house up and let's get out of here. Let's be saved. And that's the picture that Jesus is trying to portray for those who don't know Jesus to see. And for us who do know Jesus to think about whenever we're interacting with people around us. Great is the fall for them. It's the middle of the night for everyone. We don't know when Jesus is coming. He could come tomorrow. And our job is with great vehemence, with great passion, to consider the people around us and go and metaphorically pound on the door. Be saved. Come to Christ. Your future is going to be horrible. I don't want it for you. The book of Revelation says that it's God steps on you and it's like wine where grape juice is coming out, except he is crushing you and it's the blood of you coming out. And it's forever. I don't want that for you. So he is here not calling us to inaction who are believers. Instead, to action that we would be broken for the people around us that don't know Christ for their future, that we would weep for them. The Sermon on the Mount is ending on a note where it calls all of us, Christian or non, to action. Jesus is pressing in on all of us, men and women, to hear his words, heed his warnings, consider our life. And I am right now, I am entreating you, I am pleading with you. To heed his warnings. I'm begging you not to consign yourself to destruction. Not to deliver yourself over to perdition or to hell. But instead, with a spirit of contrition, repentance. Come to Christ today. Or for those of you that are Christians, begin, if you will, pounding on the door. Before you know it, your life is over. And there is not one person you can evangelize to in heaven. You're not going to lead anybody to Jesus in heaven. This is your shot. So Christ is calling us to repent today from our sin and to be forgiven. I want to conclude the exact same way that I concluded last time, um, which is the the quote from from D.A. Carson. He says this, the end of the Sermon on the Mount offers two ways and only two. The one ends in life, 714, and good fruit, 717, and entrance into the kingdom, 721, and stability in 725. The other ends in destruction, 713, bad fruit and fire, exclusion from the kingdom with all other evildoers, and ruination. There's only two ways. There's not a third. Solemn thoughts are these. And a man will ignore the weight of these blessings and curses only at his eternal peril. If we ignore this, it's only at our eternal peril. Not just for us, but for those around us. So, I think that not just you, but myself, all of us could really, in the next few minutes, take pause and, and reevaluate a couple things. Number one, let your mind wrap around the great fall being described in verse 27. That bewakes people. That is, that is going to be impending on those who don't know Christ. And number two, if, you, if we can, all can, pray that the Lord would seriously do a work on my heart and yours to have deep compassion for them. There's just got to be nights where we stay awake weeping for him. I, I just don't, I don't see any other way. If, if what he's saying is true, there's got to be some moments where, and, and it doesn't have to be here in this morning. I'm not trying to manifest tears here. I'm saying there's got to be times where in your prayer time when you're praying for them and in the morning time when you're when you're reading. Or at night when you're talking about Jesus with your wife or your husband. or Your roommate. We are overwhelmed and you just. Lord, change me, put me on the path. 
are those moments in your life. If there's not, I'm not saying you're not saved, but I'm saying that maybe we haven't all considered the great fall that's being described in verse 27. It should, it should cause us to live differently. If you don't know Christ, I invite you to put your faith in Christ this morning. You can come talk to me during our time of worship. You can um, you talk to the person you came with at the very end of the service. We'll have people down here that want to pray as well. And you can come talk to them. But I would, I would beg of you that you wouldn't leave today without leave today without knowing or without having a conversation or getting some information on what it looks like to truly be a Christian. I'm going to pray and then we're going to go into our time of the Lord's Supper. Um, and then we'll, we'll have our time of worship. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And God, it's my confession that there's just absolutely no way in my life as I look at it where day in, day out, minute by minute, hour by hour, I truly live in a way that considers the great fall of others. But God, I want it to. I want it to. I want my life to be patterned after a deep love for you and a deep love for others. I want that, God. And so forgive me for the moments in life where I don't think about that. Forgive me where I know that you've given us times of leisure. I know that you've given us times of joy. I know that you've given us families to have fun with. And I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't have those, Lord. But I, knew that, I do know that there should be moments and patterns in my life and, and for all of us where we are considering the loss around us and leveraging our lives time, our money for the furthering of your kingdom and for the saving of their souls through Christ. So help us all, Lord. Fill us with the Spirit now. And God, would you please and every person in this church drive down deep into them, including myself, a deep love for the lost where we find ourselves at some times emotionally overtaken by the future that is awaiting them with an utter dependence on you. But give us that passion for them. I pray this in Jesus' name.